Our scripture passages this morning actually uh, take two connected passages. There really could be easily three connected passages here. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, really all the way through verse 13 would be relevant. We're going to be looking at just the first six verses. And in many ways, this is our primary text this morning, uh, particularly verse 4, but our primary text. But the text upon which 1 Corinthians chapter 10 is based, these first uh, six verses, and really the sense of the whole passage, uh, comes in Exodus chapter 17. And then many passages that we find in the story of the Israelites in terms of their exodus. So reading, beginning our reading with 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 through 6, the Apostle Paul writes these words, For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now, these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. And then the passage that uh, we want to look at in Exodus is Exodus chapter 17, uh, verses 1 through 7. So if you want to turn there. And I want to begin by pointing out that uh, in your English Standard Version translation, you'll have the word congregation. The Greek Septuagint, which translates this, looks at two Hebrew words. Uh, one is often translated congregation, and the other is often translated as assembly or gathering. They reflect two Greek words, uh, ekklesia and synagogue. You hear the English, ekklesia, which is church, synagogue, which is synagogue. But if you were reading the Greek Old Testament consistently, here's what you would read as you read this passage. All the church of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages according to the commandment of the Lord and camped at Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried to the Lord, what shall I do with this people? They're almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, 
I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of all the elders of Israel. And he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel and because they tested the Lord by saying, Is the Lord among us or not? Now this passage occurs in the first few months after they left Egypt at the very beginning of their 40 years of wilderness wandering. Numbers chapter 20 is a second story almost a generation later, 40 years later, when the Israelites thirst and grumble again. And in that story, God's instructions to Moses were not to strike the rock, but to speak to the rock. Moses violated what God had said to him. Moses struck the rock. Water nevertheless came forth, but because Moses had failed to treat God as perfectly holy in the sight of the Israelites, God declared to Moses, you shall not enter into the promised land. Now, these two stories bookend the wilderness wanderings. And in between, uh, Paul is going to make comments as to what has gone on with them in the wilderness. And in 1 Corinthians 10, his whole concern there is to essentially express to the church at Corinth, the church of the Old Testament, the church that was saved by God out of Egypt, the church that was carried by God through the wilderness, the church that actually had Christ as their spiritual rock following them, that generation of the church perished. And they perished because of their evil cravings. And so Paul is going to present his statements as a warning to the church of believers in his day. Now as we get into this, let's first pray. Our God and our Father, enable us to understand what the Apostle Paul, by the inspiration of your Spirit, that has come to us through this infallible word, to speak to us today. Help us to understand uh, things which must be spiritually understood by the working of your Holy Spirit. Help us to not only understand, but to fully embrace. To listen with a heart that wants to follow Jesus faithfully. So bless this time as we consider your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. What I want us to see as we begin here is that in 1 Corinthians 10, we have the Apostle Paul uh, connecting with the Old Testament story, but also connecting with the theme that we have adopted for this year, and that is seeing Christ in all of the Old Testament, and therefore preaching Christ from the Old Testament, and recognizing that Christ is the theme of the Old Testament redemptive narrative, <coughs> And to be able to see Christ as even the focal point of all of the Old Testament narrative. And the way we see that connection with this passage this morning, where Paul 
is summarizing the experiences of that generation that left Egypt is found in verse 4. And in verse 4, the apostle is going to say, and that rock that followed them, that rock that gave them drink at the very beginning of their Exodus journey, that rock that gave them drink at the very end of their Exodus journey, that rock who gave them all that they needed in the wilderness was Christ. Christ was present with the people that he delivered out of Egypt all through their wilderness journeys. Now, so the big lesson that Paul is focusing on is a warning kind of lesson. He essentially is saying, look, although the Israelites had the presence of Christ with them and ministering to them in all of their wilderness journeys, nevertheless, they craved evil things and fell away from Christ to their doom. Then he applies it to the church at Corinth. He's declaring this passage as a passage that warns and teaches New Testament believers. And he's saying to them that our spiritual forefathers had the manifested presence of Christ in their midst, in the Exodus, in the wilderness, a presence of Christ in which Christ himself was sustaining them with spiritual food and spiritual drink, yet they doomed themselves because of their evil and immoral cravings. Therefore, Paul is saying, you, Corinthians, today's church, be warned. This could happen to us if we do not take heed and consider how we stand, which is to stand anchored to Christ, who is the rock. Now, that brings us then to the main point of this message, which reflects really the main point of what Paul says in 1 Corinthians here. The whole passage is a warning passage. It's a passage that declares that there are dangers to the Christian life. Dangers that come where? Paul might have said, uh, look at the world around you. Look at all the situations and circumstances around you. Look at the evil structures of things around you. But he doesn't. He could say, uh, look to the prince of the power of the air. Uh, look to that spirit who is now at work in the sons of disobedience. He could say, look to the devil who's the God of this world who has blinded the mind of unbelievers. He could have said, look to that. He doesn't. Instead, he says, look to what afflicted the Israelites in the wilderness. It was their evil desires. Paul is saying, look to that which is within. 
the warning of this passage, what Paul lays out as the great danger that we face as Christians, is that which is within us. That's the danger. But then Paul's whole approach is to point to how we are to address this danger. And that is to look to Christ and to stand in him. Now, let me once again present this message to you in three points. First, it involves the problem that we face as Christians. It involves defining and locating that problem. And second, it involves the solution. But the first part of that solution, to focus upon that which we must know. Thirdly, the second part of the solution, that which we must do. The problem, the solution, the solution, what we must know, the solution, what we must do. So in terms of the problem, looking at what Paul is talking about here, we have to recognize that the problem is this. There is a war, and it is a spiritual war, and that war is within. That's what Paul is warning about. So he's using the Exodus story. Uh, he's using that to present this warning and to describe that the dangers, the dangers that Christians actually face, as he says in verse 6. Now, these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. That identifies and locates the problem. It's to point out that we have an enemy within our lives as Christians which has done terrible, terrible, destructive work upon the people of God in the past. And this enemy continues to be dangerous to believers today. Listen, Paul is not describing the Corinthian believers as those who are immune from evil. He's not describing the Corinthian believers as those who do not have to worry about anything but external circumstances and external powers. He's not telling people that the problems you face are all outside of you. He's saying the enemy you face is the enemy within. Now, verse 6 the English Standard Version describes this enemy as evil desires. The New American Standard describes it as evil cravings. The New King James describes it as lusting after evil things. But the point of all of these translations is to point to the fact that the reality of this evil is that it exists within us. It comes from within now, that's Paul the Apostle's theology of what it is to be a fallen human being. Uh, 
he describes this in Ephesians chapter 2 in the first three verses. He says, but formerly you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh. It's the same terminology there. The word passions is described as evil cravings or described as evil desire in 1 Corinthians, where we're carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Now, sometimes we want to say, but we've been redeemed, so we are no longer subject to those things. But the full understanding of the apostles' theology of sin and the theology of our nature, even as Christians, shows up in Galatians chapter 5, 16 and 17, where Paul says, But I say to you, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Paul doesn't say, because you are now Christians, you will never gratify the desires of the flesh. Paul does not insulate Christians at all from this internal war within. He goes on to say, verse 17, speaking of Christians, for the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, meaning the Holy Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposed to each other to keep you, the Christian, from doing the things you want to do. Genuine struggle, genuine conflict, genuine war within. That's why Paul can say in Romans chapter 7, verses 21 to 23, so I find it to be a law, and the word law there means principle, that when I want to do what is right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Paul is saying that that which wars against him is not outside of him. It is still part of the constituency of his very nature as a Christian human being. Yes, there is the principle inside of him, in his heart of hearts, so to speak, the law of the mind in which he delights in the law of God, but there's still within him this principle of indwelling sin that is fighting against everything that God, by his spirit and grace and the redemption of Christ, is working in the Christian. Paul, then, describes this as a war. He identifies the war as that which comes from the desires of the flesh, the evil cravings of the flesh, what we have inherited from Adam, and then who we are in terms of the new man in Christ. Now, to be more specific, the enemy is not only the enemy that is within, the enemy is the human heart. This is both the Old Testament and the New Testament perspective. In the Old Testament, Jeremiah the prophet, God speaking through Jeremiah the prophet in chapter 17, verse 9 says, 
the heart is deceitful above all else and desperately wicked or desperately sick or desperately ill. Who can understand it? Now that reflects what Jeremiah was inspired by God to write in verse 1, where in verse 1 he writes these words, The sin of Judah is written with a pen of iron, with the point of a diamond. It is engraved on the tablet of their heart. The statement of Scripture is that the human heart is hardwired, so to speak, with its proclivities and desires and its bent and its orientation toward evil. Now, Jesus reinforces that viewpoint. In Mark chapter 7, in verse 21 to 23, he's addressing the fact that the Pharisees think that sin is external. Clean me up on the outside. Uh, put a nice, uh, uh, you know, gentleman's jacket on and a pair of skinny jeans, and I'm going to be looking like I'm a righteous guy. Clean me up on the outside. Let me do the things that uh, look good in terms of everybody. It doesn't matter what's on the inside. The Pharisees believed that righteousness was external. And Jesus said, to external righteousness, there must be internal righteousness. And he locates the problem with the heart. And so he says this, For from within, out of the heart of man, not to be sexist here, so out of the heart of man and woman and boys and girls come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, Coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and they defile a person. So this is what we know based upon what Scripture says. The enemy which has the power to pull us away from Christ and into ungodliness of every sort. Evil that can destroy our testimony as Christians, which can so disrupt our fellowship with God, which can lay waste our lives in such a way that we are worthless to the kingdom of God. That which gives the devil his power, that which gives the world its influence over us, all of that is found where? It's located. It's identified as the enemy that is the human heart. Jesus said, that's the basis. That's the source. That's the seat of every evil thing. So here's the application. If you want to fall away from Jesus, follow your heart. If you want to fall away from the Lord, if you want to pursue a path of ungodliness, if you want to see your Christian life broken down and destroyed, if you want to even reach the point where you are questioning whether you are even saved at all, follow your heart's desires. It's an infallible recipe. 
It's absolutely the way to go if your design and desire is to go as far away from Christ as you possibly can. Follow your heart. Or as we might paraphrase and destroy one of the best scriptures in all of scripture, Proverbs chapter 3, 5, and 6. Trust in your own heart and lean on your own understanding. In all of your ways, exploit how you feel about it and follow that, and that will direct your path into utter destruction. Where scripture says, don't trust your heart. Trust the Lord. Trust in the Lord with your whole heart, not yourself. Trust in the Lord with your whole heart. Lean not on your own understanding. Don't lean on your understanding. In all of your ways, every single way, everything about you, in all of your ways, acknowledge God, not your heart, which is deceptive above all else and desperately wicked. Acknowledge Christ, and he will direct your paths. Now, the solution, which we've anticipated with those words. But the solution involves two aspects of addressing this war within, the problem with sin, the problem that the enemy is within, the problem that the enemy is your heart, the indicative and the imperative. Two parts, the indicative and the imperative. The truth that you must know and the truth that you must apply. The truth that you must believe and trust and rest in the truth that must be so much greater than anything the world might say to you, the truth that you must know. But it's more than just knowing it. It's the truth that you must also apply. How do you address the war within? How do you follow Paul's exhortation in verse 12? Take heed how you stand, lest you fall. How do you take heed? How do you make sure that you're not trusting in your heart? Take heed how you stand lest you fall. Well, it's what you must know, and it's also what you must do. And it's all centered in Christ. Christ as the rock. So first of all, you need to know that Christ is the rock. To call Christ the rock, as the Apostle Paul does, is, of course, a metaphor. And the question is, what does this metaphorical description of Christ as the rock, what is that supposed to mean for us in terms of our theology, in terms of our understanding of who Christ is, in terms of not only our understanding of who Christ is, but to know him as the rock? What does this mean? Well, first we have to consider the Old Testament because that's the source of all of this. We have to think about uh, the Hebrew. And there were two particular words that the Hebrew customarily used for the rock as it applied to God. And they were used interchangeably. But those two words did not describe rocks like stones or pebbles. It described rocks, and you have to start thinking about boulders and things that are big 
Because the second thing about the Hebrew is that it's in the context of a geological and geographical reality that the Israelites are experiencing as they come out of Egypt and into the Sinai Peninsula and what they see and what they experience because it's Moses who first begins to describe God as the rock. At some point, you should probably go on Google Maps or Google Earth and look at the Sinai Peninsula and just put in Mount Sinai and Mount Horeb and you'll see what I'm talking about. But just imagine, if you would, um, heading toward Tehachapi here in the San Joaquin Valley. And you're coming to the foothills and then to the mountains and then, you know, Bear Mountain rising up to 6,000 feet, Breckenridge on the other side rising up to 6,000 feet. And now reimagine all of that stripped of every ounce of topsoil and every particle of dirt and every vestige of vegetation. Imagine it so that what you are actually seeing is bedrock completely. And then imagine this bedrock is not weather and wind-worn like our foothills are and our mountains happen to be. Imagine that the erosive forces of nature have hardly touched this area because they haven't seen the abundant rainfall that we see here in Bakersfield. <laughs> it is that dry and has been for thousands and thousands of years. Imagine that coming out of the Nile Valley, coming down the Sinai Peninsula, coming to Mount Horeb, and you're essentially at sea level maybe a little bit higher, then all of a sudden you've got two and 3,000 foot mountains that rise up in front of you and they are all rock. So what goes on in the mind of the Israelite when he thinks about rock is not a pebble, not a stone, but it is something that is enormous in size. So the geography and the geology is what gives powerful uh, content to the word rock. So what did this mean in terms of their understanding of rocks as it applied to God? Well, greatness and size and greatness and power and strength and solidness and immovability and, and vulnerability and imperviousness and permanence and durability... That's what all of this connoted to them. What are these rocks like on the Sinai Peninsula? They're absolutely overwhelming. And therefore, they are the perfect place of protection when you flee from your enemies. They have the power to give you security. They can be your refuge and your safety. They can be an incredible place to hide. They can be the high ground that places you far, far above your enemy. That's what the meaning of rock was to Moses, to the Israelites. 
Now that metaphor then translates into how Moses actually describes God to the Israelites at the end of his life. In Deuteronomy 32, we have the song of Moses. And the rock is, in fact, the new introduction of a new way of identifying God that you find in the theology of the first five books. And and clearly, when, when, when Moses refers to God as the rock, it's not something that's brand new to the Israelites. He doesn't really have to explain it. But it shows up in very powerful ways to get an understanding of what does this rock concept connected to God imply that we're to know and believe and trust about God? So in verse 3, chapter 32, Moses says, For I will proclaim the name of the Lord. Now we know that name in the Old Testament refers to the reality, the nature, the substance, the character. So I am going to proclaim the name of the Lord, Moses says, and ascribe greatness to our God. Verse 4, the rock, his way is perfect. For all his ways are justice. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity. Just and upright is he. And then Moses goes on to speak about how in the wilderness the Israelites had persistently fallen away. Verse 15, he says, Then Israel forsook God who made him and scoffed at the rock of his salvation. That continues on into verse 18, where Moses says, You were unmindful of the rock that bore you, and you forgot the God who gave you birth. That's why the Israelites spent 40 years in the wilderness. They were unfaithful to God. Then at the end of this song, verse 30 to 31, Moses applies this concept of rock to idolatry, to the pagan worship of pagan gods who are not gods. Now, of course, the Apostle Paul is concerned in 1 Corinthians 10 with idolatry. That's one of those cravings that destroyed the Israelites in the wilderness. And so Moses is saying here in verse 30 to 31, how could one, meaning one Israelite, have chased a thousand, meaning a thousand pagans? He's speaking about the wars that they did and actually had defeated uh, Og and Zihon, and all of those things as they're coming out of the wilderness. Unless their rock, meaning their God, had sold them, and the Lord, our Lord, had given them up. Verse 31. For their rock, meaning their gods, their rock is not as our rock. Our enemies are by themselves. That is to say, their rock doesn't even exist. So Moses is declaring that all the gods of the pagans are no gods at all. Which, by the way, the Apostle Paul picks up again in chapter 10 as he goes on to talk about the Lord's Supper. There are, there are an incredible number of direct connections between what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10 all the way through and what Moses writes about 
and what the law is about and the experiences of the Israelites. But essentially, Moses is telling the Israelites that in everything that God is, in his justice, his power, in the perfection of his ways, this one true God is like the rock. Greatness in size, greatness in power, greatness in strength, greatness in solidness, a God who doesn't change, a God who can't be moved, a God who is impervious to all the ups and downs of life, a God who is permanently durable in his covenant commitments to his people. Therefore, he's the place of protection and the place of safety and the place of security. He's the place to go to for refuge for hiding. He's the high ground that protects from the enemy. Now, Christ is all of that. Everything that God the rock is, Christ the rock is. That's what Paul is teaching us. To know that Christ is the rock is to know the nature of this rock in all of the saving work of Christ. And therefore, what we need to know is to know and to believe and to trust in His great and invincible power in all of His saving work. So Christ is the rock of regeneration. It is by His great power that you have been born again unto a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead that you may receive an inheritance that is imperishable and undefiled and unfading because the rock never changes. He's the rock of redemption by which you were redeemed from the futile ways of your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of the rock, Christ, who was as a lamb without blemish or spot because the rock is perfect in all of his ways. The rock of propitiation. Our rock committed no sin, nor was there any deceit found in his mouth, but he himself bore in his body our sins upon the tree that by his wounds we are healed. And even though all we like sheep had gone astray, each of us to his own way, nevertheless, the Lord has laid upon him, Jesus, the rock, the iniquity of us all. The rock was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the punishment that brought us peace. He's the propitiation in his own blood that has paid in full the penalty for our sins, which has satisfied the holy justice of God, justified us by His blood, saved by Him from the wrath of God, which bore down upon Him and stood against us as sinners. And therefore, He's the rock of reconciliation. We were enemies to God but we have been reconciled by God to the death of the rock, His Son, who is our Lord Jesus Christ. 
For God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, not counting men's trespasses against him, because for our own sake, the rock who knew no sin became the sin offering on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Now this is part one of the solution. To know that Christ is the rock in all of his saving work on your behalf. The work of Christ, which is an immovable, invulnerable, unchanging work for you. Then part two, which is to apply this knowledge of Christ to the war within. And there's a two-stage application. It requires first that we begin with ourself. Which is to say, you must confront the truth that your heart can't be trusted. It's the source of the evil that wars against you. It is the factory of idols and idolatry, as Calvin said. It is the source of evil cravings. It is deceitful, sneaky, sly. It will make sin look like something good. It will lead you astray. Second, look to Christ. And here we find exceptionally good guidance from David as king of Israel and as the sweet psalmist of Israel. Here is the direction and guidance that the Spirit of God gave to David to record in Scripture to give to us. We've read it already, Psalm 19. Especially verses 12, 13, and 14. David has written, Who can discern his errors? Do you see? The, the answer is, well, no one can. You can't even see all the ways in which you've gone astray. You can't even understand your own sinfulness. Why? Because your heart is deceitful. Your heart will tell you that something you did that was wrong wasn't really wrong. So David prays, declare me innocent from hidden faults. Looking to Christ, he prays. Verse 13, keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Presumptuous sins, willful sins. Let them not have dominion over me. <clears throat> Why can sin have dominion over you? Because your heart's going to agree with sin. Because that's the heart of the war. Because the war is in the heart. David says, then I shall be blameless. Lord, if you do not let sin have dominion over me, then I'm going to be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Verse 14. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O oh Lord, my rock and my redeemer. 
David doesn't trust his heart. He prays to the rock, the Lord, his Redeemer, that the meditations of his heart would be acceptable. He's already turned to the Lord in terms of turning to the law, and and he's grateful because the law can revive his soul. The law can make him wise. The Word of God can rejoice his heart. It can enlighten his eyes. It can give him the fear of God. It can impress upon him the righteousness of all of the rules and testimonies of God so that hidden faults, indiscernible errors, presumptuous sins would not dominate his life. He prays that his rock, his Redeemer, would do this work in his own soul, in his heart, in his inner being, that which human effort can never accomplish. David has no power against the sinfulness of his own heart. Instead, he looks to the rock. He looks to the Redeemer. He looks to Christ to deliver him from this enemy within. He fights the war by prayer and by trusting in the power of the rock. And the movement in David's life in this way leads him to pray this prayer of great confidence and turning to Christ as his rock. In 2 Samuel 22, verses 1 through 4, David spoke to the Lord the words of this song. On the day when the Lord had delivered him from the hands of his enemies and from the hands of Saul, David said, The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer. My God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold and my refuge, my Savior, you save me from violence. I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised and I'm saved from my enemies. Look to Christ. Call upon the rock in order to be saved from the enemy that is within. Now to wrap this up. When the Lord led the Israelites out of Egypt and all through the 40 years in the wilderness, when he fed them and when he gave them water to drink, Christ was with them. He was their rock. Yet their downfall was the idolatry that sprang out of the evil cravings of their own heart. They followed their heart. They did not follow the rock. Paul says, we're in the same kind of a war. Our enemy is likewise within. It is our own heart which can be so deceptive to follow our heart is always to commit idolatry. But to fight this fight, to fight in this war, we must look to Christ, the rock, your fortress, your deliverer, in whom you are to take refuge, the rock who is your shield, and your stronghold, 
the rock who is the only one who can save you from your enemy which resides in your own heart. And therefore your hope must be built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and his righteousness. He is the solid rock upon which you must stand. Let's pray. Almighty God, help us, we pray, that you would give us a clearer understanding of this war that is within and then Christ, our rock, who can give us the way to victory. This we would pray for, that we would always be taking heed how we stand lest we fall, that we would stand upon Christ, the solid rock. In his name, amen.